This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. There is a lot of uncertainty because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there is some glimmer of optimism out there as well. Home sales were up in June and many are describing the market as red hot. If anything, there aren't enough houses to sell. So we're going to be talking to the folks with Elbar in just a little while. But first, parents and students across the state are still waiting to see what will happen when school starts again this fall. In a normal year, school would be starting up in a couple of weeks, but many districts have pushed the beginning of the year back because of the pandemic. And Jefferson and Fayette County Schools, the two largest districts in the state and many others, have made the decision to begin the school year online. The Pritchard Committee for Academic Excellence has been working to improve the state's education for decades now, and its president and CEO and a strong advocate for education is Bridget Blum Ramsey, who is joining us on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you, Bill. You know, there's a lot of apprehension out there uh, right now. Uh, how do you feel, first of all, that schools have to this point uh, been able to navigate this situation? And uh, what do you have to say to them as they get ready now to begin a new school year? Well, Bill, our schools, our educators, and our families have taken on a monumental task since spring, and they've weathered it well. Um, the rapid response that we saw in the spring from teachers and from our school districts, um, the commitment of parents to connect with the school districts um, was just amazing. And um, I think it took everything that everybody had to make that work in the spring. We've had a little bit of downtime through the summer months, and now it's time to get rolling again with just as much uncertainty as there was in the spring. So it's a really difficult time for our educators and for our families. This will put enormous responsibilities on the teachers and staff members. They'll be, uh, you know, the teachers will be uh, teaching a class in person as well as online and also managing uh, temperature checks and mask requirements and social distancing. I mean, how much more stress will this put on school personnel? I think the stress is about uh, maintaining stamina. So, you know, the stress started in the spring. We had a little bit of a reprieve as families, including our educators, were able to spend some time at home through the summer months. But none of us have had a summer like we typically have. I mentioned to somebody the other day, it's kind of like we're spectators in life. We're all sitting watching life go by from our living rooms. So now this moment calls on us to kind of double down on the stamina once again as we're heading into a school year with just as much, maybe even more uncertainty. So it's a time for all of us to um, give each other a little bit of a break, to stay together in this effort, families and schools and communities, to figure out how we just do the very best we can through an unprecedented and extraordinary time. Well said. You know, uh, many schools are giving uh, students and, and parents the option of going fully virtual. That is, they go in with the understanding that that is the way it will be for this semester. And then maybe another option of they begin uh, sort of a NTI learning, but would have the opportunity to join in-person uh, classes if uh, that uh, were to be made available. Do you, uh, you know, would you advise parents on which direction to pick? 
You know, right now, because of the health and the safety concerns, I think it's really important that parents um, are able to make that decision for their family and for the health and the well-being of their family. So the options that our school districts are providing is absolutely the right way to go. Parents need to feel comfortable, um, and these options provide some level of comfort if that's possible during these times. It's also about how students learn. So I've heard parents mention, you know, their kids really need to be back in an in-person environment because learning at home remotely or with um, paper materials was simply not working. Whereas other students thrive in a remote learning environment. Um, and so again, it's really up to, I think, students and parents and having that conversation about what's best for them. As you well know, uh, not all students are on an even playing field, obviously. Uh, so what needs to happen to make sure that students who may not have a parent around or they may not have good Internet access, uh, that they still can succeed academically? And you know, Bill, that is our should be our collective greatest concern in this moment. Um, the pandemic has shown a light on the inequities that we already knew existed. Um, and so some students don't have the supports at home that they need for lots of reasons because parents are trying to make ends meet, parents are stretched thin, um, they may not have access to broadband in a way that meets their online learning needs. So those are the students we really need to reach out to individually to make sure they're getting everything they need to make sure um, they really embrace the importance of their learning um, to, to help them move forward and to help them commit to moving forward. We can't lose ground during this pandemic. Um, Kentucky's done a great job over the last three decades moving um, our education outcomes forward. And this is no time to, um, to, to let those um, outcomes begin to decline. So it's really time for, um, for our educators, but also our community members, community organizations, to reach out to the families and the students who we know need us most during this time. And remind ourselves that we're not running in place here. We're still trying to make progress uh, even in this situation. Uh, that's right. Bridget, almost everybody agrees, you know, that in-person instruction is better if it can happen. Uh, should schools uh, have that as their, uh, as their goal heading into this uh, upcoming semester? I know they're balancing that, that, that safety issue, but should they uh, be revisiting uh, from time to time throughout the semester uh, whether they should let students back in? I think we need to revisit on a regular basis, Bill, given the uncertainty. Um, you know, last week on the Facebook Live program that we do called Innovations in Education for a Big Bold Future, we hosted Dr. Stephen Pruitt, who many will know as Kentucky's former commissioner, now president of the Southern Region Education Board. And he said there were three guiding principles that they were thinking of and using um, to kind of analyze the moment and make decisions. And that is governance, health and safety, and um, instruction. And so from a governance standpoint, what Dr. Pruitt shared was really making sure we're engaging our community, um, even in, in a task force, um, health professionals, educators, families, um, uh, businesses locally, to better respond to this moment collectively with all of the assets that we have. So I think we need to continually revisit without a doubt. 
I do think though, we need to get um, the, the pedagogy, if you will, of remote learning. So that's the craft of teaching in a remote environment and the art of learning in a remote environment. We're gonna have to get that down because it's likely gonna be part of our new normal. So figuring out how we do that well, how teachers deliver online content well, how they build relationships with students in a, um, when we can't be physically close, and how students learn in a remote environment is gonna be critical for our future now and in a new normal. As we look for other bright spots, uh, do you think uh, in some ways that this has helped parents become more involved and engaged in their, uh, in their children's education? I'm so glad you called it a bright spot, Bill, or um, I've, I've also called it a silver lining. That is absolutely the bright spot, um, that in the spring months we heard just kind of a resounding optimism around the relationships that were being built between educators and their students in new and um, extraordinary ways, and the relationships that were being built between our schools and our families. Everyone really needed to come together, and they did, and they realized new and strengthened relationships as a result and we want that to be something that we sustain into the next and a new normal because we know learning grows out of those strong relationships um, and it's a triad educators families and students so the uh, some of these temporary fixes uh, could become uh, good permanent changes uh, moving forward and they should if they're good innovations we need them to become part of our new normal what are you looking forward to as uh, as we uh, will be seeing the next legislative session coming up in january six months or so away uh, we know that the budget is likely to be very challenging uh, do you have concerns about uh, educational funding we absolutely have concerns about educational funding, early childhood through post-secondary. It's gonna be an extremely difficult time for our policymakers to balance the next one-year budget. Um, we're hearing about declines in revenue, significant declines. And, you know, Bill, it's not lost on any of us that we're not that far out of the Great Recession. So we are entering this pandemic in um, kind of a lower baseline of funding than we had uh, the, in the last generation, if you will. And so now was the time we thought we would be able to pick up on funding, um, a big, bold ask that the Pritchard Committee submitted to the legislature. Um, and this pandemic uh, makes that um, um, less than realistic, but we're still hopeful because education is our path forward in the state of Kentucky. It is what will allow us to increase um, our economic activity and increase quality of life. And we certainly hope and will appeal to our legislators to um, ensure in any way possible that we continue to fund early childhood, K-12 education, and post-secondary education so we can support our college students um, to get that degree that's gonna benefit them and their families and their communities in the long run. Kentucky is a new education commissioner who will be starting in a few weeks, Dr. Jason Glass, returning home to the Commonwealth uh, where he began his uh, teaching career and where he grew up. Uh, he said that uh, coming home was uh, an important reason that uh, he uh, chose this. Uh, your reaction to, uh, to his, the choice of him? Well, we're excited to get to know Dr. Glass. Um, we're excited to welcome him back to Kentucky um, and to get busy quickly, uh, making sure that we're providing the supports that we need to our educators, um, that we're providing the supports that we need to our families, and that we are doubling down on a call now for many years to close the racial inequities that exist in our school system and to ensure that we are providing the best, delivering the best education for each and every 
every one of our learners. Um, and now is not a time to let up on that call to action, and we look forward to working with Dr. Glass um, to make that a reality. And I'm sure you've been uh, somewhat impressed with the, the job that uh, Kevin Brown has done in these uh, months in which he was filling in, uh, you know, unexpectedly uh, as uh, the interim commissioner. Kevin has done a fabulous job, as we all knew he would. Those of us who watched Kevin work under previous commissioners, he was absolutely the right person at the right time to fill that role and to um, keep the ship steady, if you will. Um, so we, we, know J we know Kevin will be going back to uh, JCPS, um, but congratulations to Kevin. Really well done job. And Bridget Blom Ramsey, thank you so much for being with us from the Pritchard Committee. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. We hope you'll stay with us here on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll look at housing and real estate trends in the bluegrass coming up. We welcome you back to Kentucky Newsmakers from WKYT. Despite all that we're facing in the world and here in Kentucky, the housing market is hot. Historically low interest rates and a low inventory of available homes has created a near frenzy in Lexington. Realtors often tell their clients to make fast decisions and strong offers as soon as they see something they like. Joining us from the Lexington Bluegrass Association of Realtors, Elbar, is the current president, Greg Buchanan, and the CEO of Elbar, Justin Landon. Gentlemen, thank you very much uh, both for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you. You know, we're in the middle of a, a pandemic and a deep recession. We're seeing uh, very troubling numbers about the economy, uh, historic unemployment, and yet the home market is booming in the bluegrass. What is driving it, Greg? Well, Lexington's done a great job in Fayette County and the surrounding areas of, of promoting, you know, how great it is and a wonderful community that we have to live in. And uh, so we have a really, really strong demand and we just have very, very low inventory to, to support that demand. And so that's drive, driving the, the frenzy um, of the housing market. Um, just simple, you know, growth is coming and we don't have enough inventory to support that growth. And so you're seeing prices uh, kind of really go up, jump maybe 10 to 15% in certain areas and houses don't stay on the market that long, and specifically houses in the $200,000 price range, um, they are going rather really, really quick, so. Justin, the supply question is real, uh, particularly in central Kentucky, right? It is, and, and you know, I'd always like to point out that although we're at a, an all-time low inventory number right now, we were at an all-time inventory number in January and February of this year as well. And so long before uh, coronavirus was a, uh, a spot in anybody's eye, uh, uh, we were suffering from an inventory challenge, a really very strong inventory challenge. And, and this is a historic problem that's, our inventory numbers have been trending down every year for the last 10. Uh, and that bill is really starting to come due at the same time that we're experiencing a pandemic, which is you know certainly somewhat exacerbating the problem. And what is the major driver of that problem? Uh, you know, you've, you've, you have said before, Justin, that it is something that Fayette County desperately needs to address. You do, you do see some uh, housing developments going up in Madison, Scott, and Jessamine, not so much in Fayette. Uh, do, is it the, the tough restrictions? Uh, there, there's no question that there are some uh, regulatory uh, uh, things in, in Fayette County that have held back the ability for uh, additional lots to be put in the ground for new construction. And, and that's a decision that our community's made. Um, Greg and I were talking about this before we came on air. And you know, the reality is there, there needs to be a comprehensive discussion of all the stakeholders in the region. You know, Fayette County's not gonna solve this problem with, with by themselves. Uh, the, the surrounding counties aren't gonna be able to solve it without Fayette County's help and cooperation. 
and the real estate industry is not going to be able to solve it on their own. Uh, you know, we really need a comprehensive discussion among all the stakeholders, the agriculture community, the government, uh, the real estate industry, and, and, and the most important person, the resident of the area uh, who really desperately wants to have a home they can afford uh, that's near where they work and where their kids go to school. Uh, and we've got to do our best to try to deliver that. And we've done a pretty good job historically, but we're starting to run out. And, and we just need to have a conversation about how we're going to move forward. Uh, because where we were at 10,000 listings in all of Central and Southern Kentucky 10 years ago, uh, we're at about 4,000 today. Greg, do you worry about uh, affordability uh, becoming a, an issue for people? Even though the interest rates are low, uh, people can get money cheaply, uh, but the, the home prices uh, have to be going up because of, uh, of this low inventory situation. Absolutely, Bill. I mean, the, the low interest rates do help. You know, your money can go a little bit further than it used to. Uh, you know, Justin and I were talking, we've seen some refinances and some people purchasing at 2.75. So it's historically low and that's good. But the problem is, you know, the housing affordability, uh, you know, specifically in Fayette County is extremely, extremely uh, hard and difficult situation to, to understand. And right now you have a climate of diversity and inclusion amongst this nation. And here we are with the, you know, the rate of home ownership amongst uh, African-Americans and Latinos is significantly less than, than whites. And, you know, how do you close that gap when you have housing affordability uh, through the roof in Fayette County? So I'm going to give you, go ahead. Give you an example, Bill. I'm sorry. We're uh, just in the month of July alone, right this minute, housing prices in our region are up 15% year over year. Uh, that's great if you're selling a house right now, but in terms of the long-term sustainability, you know, we'd like to see price growth on an annual basis, you know, somewhere between two and 5%. Uh, and historically, especially in Fayette County over the last several years, it's been more like eight to 10%. And, and that's, it's, yeah, and it's just, it's just not sustainable. And all of yeah. these conversations that we're having about inventory and about prices and about housing affordability, sustainability is the word we really need to be talking about. Well, it's a very interesting uh, topic, is, as you said, going to require a lot of uh, stakeholders at the table and, 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 a, and really a long-term issue. In the short term, uh, if people are planning to uh, sell, and <laughs> they need to know where they're going, don't they? I mean, because you may get multiple offers the day you put a sign in your yard. Yeah, they will. They'll get multiple offers, uh, more than likely, if it's in a desired area with uh, and priced right. Um, we have seen some lagging, uh, you know, market time uh, with regards to the luxury market. Um, but anything between the, the, the 150 and, and 350, yeah, you're going to get offers, you're going to get multiple offers. But, you know, you need to, you know, really key in on your realtor to help you navigate um, how you're going to structure the contract to make sure that your, maybe your house that you're listing is contingent upon you finding a home um, in, in, you know, within 45 days and closing on it. That way you can feel comfortable enough to put your house in the market and to make sure that you can find your next home. You know, we've heard a lot about uh, nesting during this uh, pandemic, a word that has been used often the last uh, few months of people really appreciating their homes or uh, maybe taking stock of their wish lists either way. Uh, what are buyers uh, typically looking for in a home and, uh, and, and how often are they interested in making that next step, Justin? You know, Greg's probably better to talk about what buyers are really looking for in homes yeah. uh, as he as he's got agents that are working with those buyers every day. But I will say that there's no question uh, that that buyers and people that are you know currently living at homes, potential sellers, um, really have come to understand that home is such an important thing in our culture. It's even more important now during the pandemic as we've been at home 
Uh, we're coming to appreciate things about our homes that maybe we didn't appreciate before. There's been a lot more talk about home offices. There's been a lot of talk about having space for a home gym. Uh, and so I, I think that as uh, buyers are looking for homes, they're looking for, again, things that uh, make that home a more desirable place to, uh, to spend a lot of time in. You know, we've all come to appreciate uh, those features in our home in the last few months. So Greg, as uh, homes have become, as Justin was saying, uh, uh, your gym, maybe your school, uh, your home office, uh, adding all of that to uh, what was already your home, uh, how do people adjust to that? Do they need more space uh, oftentimes? Well, I think during this pandemic, for sure, people have evaluated their current uh, lifestyle and their current housing uh, situation and, and wanted to know what they need um, in case something like this occurs again. So you're seeing a lot more people wanting a home office um, or more space to, uh, to, to handle or just honestly build some more space to get away from uh, family members, you know, because uh, you, know, you got a lot of uh, parents who are teachers right now, uh, you know, teaching their kids from, from the NTI learning days and, and uh, you know, trying to get a workout in when the gyms are closed. So, yeah, I think people have had a long time during this pandemic to evaluate their home situation and find out what they need in a home. And I think that has definitely put some buyers in the market that maybe weren't thinking about buying before. And at the same time, and, and I know this personally, uh, people have come to appreciate their neighbors and the neighborhoods as well. And that's another factor that maybe some have uh, uh, come to, uh, you know, uh, appreciate more uh, the, the people who are around them through this, uh, this situation, huh? Definitely. And I think, uh, you, know, you know, neighborhoods definitely are, are you know, are valuable uh, right now during this time frame that we're in and, and being able to rely on your neighbors. And it's gonna be interesting, Bill, to be honest with you, to see how the jobs react down the road post COVID-19. And what I mean by that, like I'm at the Danville Country Club this morning uh, doing the Zoom meeting, and I'm wondering if like people, employers in Fayette County are, um, you know, maybe they say, you know what, you don't need to come to the office five days a week, but maybe you need to come to the office, let's say three days a week. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if buyers will, will consider communities further outside of Fayette County, like a Danville, if they only have to make that commute three times during the week. So it's gonna be really interesting to see the, uh, the sprawl yeah. that this, this pandemic has caused with the neighboring counties and not just the neighboring counties that touch Fayette County. That's another good uh, thought starter there. Uh, what I've asked Justin this uh, question is we're into this uh, weekend of the eviction moratorium uh, nationwide is ending. Uh, Kentucky still has one under the governor's order, although that is uh, under challenge. Uh, but that is a, that's tough for both the tenants and uh, and landlords, right? It is, and uh, you know, I mean, the, the truth is, every eviction is a tragic situation. Um, every foreclosure is a tragic situation. Um, I know that today our, our national association, the National Association of Realtors, the largest trade association in the world, uh, is working hard in Washington to have conversations in the next uh, stimulus package or recovery package that comes out that part of that package includes landlord relief. Uh, because the truth is many landlords have notes they have mortgages that they need to pay uh, and as we've gone through this period of time where folks have not been able to pay rent uh, in some cases landlords have been able to make adjustments but in some cases they haven't because they still have bills to pay as well um, so we want to be incredibly sensitive to, to tenants out there uh, we don't want anybody to be displaced from their home uh, by the same token we need to make sure that as a country we're, we're having a comprehensive solution uh, to take care of the people that have been impacted by the pandemic and, and landlords are a big part of that i'll also note that, that commercial landlords have, have really been struggling. And that's a conversation that has not been had nearly enough. 
because there are a lot of businesses out there unable to pay rent right now, uh, and those commercial landlords yeah. are also having to, 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 to take that impact. Uh, again, we're, we're doing all we can at the national level to have those conversations, but, um, but you know, I don't have anything to report today about what that solution looks like. There you go. All right, lots of uh, conversations to be had in the future. Gentlemen, thank you very much, uh, Greg Buchanan uh, from Elbar and Justin Landon. We appreciate it very much. And we hope you'll stay with us on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll be right back. Well, COVID-19 is spiking across the U.S. A federal report is now putting nearly half of all states in the red zone. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has the latest. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. A major milestone in the race for COVID-19 vaccine. This week, the U.S. seen its first phase three clinical trials. Moderna and the NIH collaborating on one vaccine candidate. By November or December, they hope to know if it will be effective. Also, Pfizer and BioNTech's investigative vaccine is in its final stage of testing. Those companies say they are on track to apply for a regulatory review by October. Both inoculations would be given in two doses over several weeks. The question is, how often will we need to be vaccinated? Will it be one and done? Or will we need to come back every year like we do for the flu shot? I asked infectious disease specialist Dr. Jeannie Morazzo for some insight. We know that antibodies to the coronaviruses that we are familiar with from the common cold don't last. Maybe they last several months, maybe they last a year, maybe they last three years. So if I was just hypothesizing an answer to your question based on what we know about coronavirus immunity, I would say, I hope this vaccines, if they work, the vaccines, I hope they induce immunity for at least a year. It would be fantastic if it was a couple of years. Are we gonna get away with a single lifetime shot? I am very skeptical. The other side of that coin that we have in our favor, which is at least trying to inject some positivity into this dire discussion, is that at least the coronavirus that we're dealing with does not seem to mutate in a crazy way, like influenza. So there are some different variants. We know there's a Chinese variant, there's a European variant, but right now we are at least somewhat confident that we're not going to have to develop different vaccines for different quote-unquote strains like we do for influenza. So that's a positive thing. We are months out from knowing if Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines will work, but if they do, Moderna will reportedly charge up to $60 per the two-dose course. Pfizer will reportedly charge $39. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 11.30 on WKYT. Thank you for being with us for Kentucky Newsmakers. I'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning and throughout the day on WKYT News. Make it a good week ahead.